just a 10-minute light rail ride from the heart of Denver on the fifth floor of the Lamont School of Music, there is a rose. It is 10 feet tall and wide and hewn from stone. The panes of glass set into the petals bring the glorious Rocky Mountains into view. On the other side of the glass, Lamont musicians sit down to discuss the world of music behind and beyond that window. This is the Rose Room. Hello all Rose Room listeners, I'm your host Grace Gans, and today we're going to have a discussion on the world of recording and production at Lamont and beyond, and we have three incredible guests today. Our first guest, Michael J. Scholes, is a man of many talents and is the founder and director of the award-winning Bachelor of Music Recording and Production degree program at Lamont. He is a musician, composer, coder, music producer, recording engineer, video producer, writer, and educator. He has produced and engineered albums for world-renowned artists such as 8th Blackbird, John Luther Adams, Kartik Sashadri, and Apollo's Fire Baroque Orchestra, whose recording of Brock's Brandenburg Concertos hit the UK Billboard Top 10 Classical Charts in 2010. Before coming to DU, Michael was a lecturer and director of audio services at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music, where he initiated and taught the conservatory's first course in audio engineering. While in Ohio, he served as a consultant to the AT&T Shannon Research Labs in Florham Park, New Jersey, in the development and implementation of the Advanced Audio Codec, and initiated collaborative 3D surround recording projects with the Cleveland Orchestra. Second, C.J. Finkhauser, also known as Reset, is a second-year student at Lamont and is a vocalist, drummer, composer, and producer. At the University of Denver, CJ majors in music recording and production with an emphasis in jazz drums and has attained multiple awards for his percussive talents across multiple genres. As a frontman of his own project, Reset is passionate about bringing light to new ways of performing live music, as well as giving tribute to traditional performance methods. And finally, we have Holt Stairs, who is a senior recording and production major with a minor in entrepreneurship, and he is currently the president of DU Radio. Outside of school, Holt is an underground rap producer and recording and mixing engineer. He's worked with several notable underground collectives, including Schema Posse, Goth Boy Click, Money Posse, Handsome, and artists like Lederick, Sexy Saxman, Brennan Savage, and many more. He recently completed an internship in LA with former Kendrick Lamar and TDE engineer John McLean, or also known as Zaba, and is currently planning on finishing school and moving to LA to work at the same studio where he interned. So, so much talent and so many things to talk about here. So let's get into it. So before we get into all the big topics today, I'd just like to know how you all are doing today and during this crazy pandemic. We had a good first week, I think, but uh, I'm spending kind of more time working on COVID issues than I am on on teaching, which is, uh, you know, it is what it is. Definitely. And what about you, CJ and Holt? It's going. Right before the quarter started, Holt and I put together a little little thing coming out sooner than later, so watch out for that for sure. It's going pretty smooth, though, I think. Right. Things are going good. 
like CJ said, we made a song. That was fun. I don't know. I'm I'm just curious to see how this quarter will end up being and how ensembles will be. And Very nice. And what's the name slash genre of this track that you guys made? Definitely, like, overarching, like, vibe. It's, it's definitely hip-hop, but it has an alternative kind of sound to it a little bit. From people that I've shown, I'm generally getting a vibe that it's kind of like hip-hop meets nirvana in like a way which is not a bad thing yeah i don't i don't think not at all so i want to first talk to michael about founding the recording and production program at lamont in 2003 so what was that process like and how have you seen the program transform over the years well in 2003 actually it wasn't a program it was a concentration within the jazz studies program So the building had just been opened like in the spring of the previous year. I got there in the fall. The studio was there. They'd been doing some recording in there. So all my students were were jazz majors, most of them, which was cool. And over the years, you know, the first couple years I was here, I started to get lots of questions from non-jazz majors about getting into the program, getting into the classes. And so I started to do that. But after a while, it, it occurred to me that, you know, this has to change more substantially rather than me just letting people into this jazz course. So that's when I initiated the process of actually creating the standalone major, which was, you know, a bunch of paperwork and stuff. Uh, no big deal. I don't remember when that was. It might have been 2008, perhaps. We we got it proposed. We got it approved by university administration. It had to go to National Association of Schools of Music for approval, which was an interesting process. It, they're getting better about that now, but at the time, it, it kind of looked like they weren't really all that well equipped to deal with this kind of a program, but it, it got through. So uh, since then, you know, we got more students. The, the class size got a little bit bigger. Students from the program won this uh, prestigious award, uh, Downbeat Magazine, uh, Best Engineered Studio Recording. They won that uh, five times over the course of 10 years. Uh, Pretty much every other year, somebody won. And that one person, two people won two times each. So that was pretty cool. And now what's going on is because now I keep getting inquiries from non it's the bachelor of music and recording production major i get all kinds of inquiries from students who are not in that major who want into the classes and now they're coming even from outside the music school there's so many students on campus who who produce electronic music and do all kinds of stuff like that don't necessarily come from a, a formal music background but they're they're doing great work so now what i'm trying to do I actually uh, doubled the class size for the freshman year class this year because the first year of the class lends itself very well to being almost completely online. So because I was going to be online anyway, I was able to accept a whole bunch of other students. So I've got um, I've got a film studies student now. I have a classical trumpet major. I think I've got one or two people from other other departments. And what I'm trying to do is expand it even further. And the plan now is that, this is a long answer to your question, but it's a good answer that I think the people will, will, will want to hear about this. We, uh, I, I have chaired a committee for uh, the past couple of months with faculty from film studies, emergent digital practices, engineering, electrical engineering, 
theater and some other departments. And we are talking about the possibility of forming a new unit, perhaps a minor, perhaps a major, that would be audio engineering, music production, synthesis, electronic music, film studies, digital arts like uh, generative reactive digital video, and electronics for the arts as the core um, with relationships to the theater department and and to other departments. And that this would be a, a unit where any student at the university probably would be able to come in and take uh, classes from that menu. Maybe it'll be a major someday. We, we proposed a specific minor. So the idea is to keep doing what happened since 2003, which is the demand for the audio engineering stuff has been so strong over the years. And now I discover from my colleagues over at Film Studies that they have the same issue. They've, they've got way more students who want to learn that stuff than they have room for. So now we're talking about putting all that stuff together in the same place because that's how it is in the industry and making room for many more students to come and kind of design their own path through those multiple disciplines and just see where that where that leads us to get away from the kind of traditional university music school thing where all the different programs are kind of in their own silos and you can't you can't move from one to the other and that's just not the way that the arts work and that's not the way that the industry works anymore so yeah there's there's big cool things on the horizon kind of continuing from that initial expansion out of uh, 2003. I think that's so cool. I think what we're seeing a lot today is this kind of artist collective type of movement. Exactly. Where you have like photography combined with music, combined with live art, combined with audio engineering. And that's how Meow Wolf started. And that's how we have in town now like uh, Orpheus Collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of DU students who are doing that. It, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's very cool and something that we could definitely see as a college major eventually one day because I know as a student in my experience too it's kind of restricting being in this like this is your major format and you can't pick and choose or blend from other majors so I think that's a really fantastic idea yeah and you were in and out of the studio many many times and doing more rock and roll oriented stuff and jazz stuff and that that's exactly what we're talking about here yeah and so speaking of talking about studying music Uh, in a university context. I want to open it up to all of you here. So in today's world, a lot of, you know, self-made music is coming out and it's very trendy Uh, because you have anything from like SoundCloud rap to bedroom pop to name a few of the more newer musical genres that stem from this making music in your bedroom vibe. And some of that has become extremely successful in the cases of artists like Chance the Rapper and Post Malone and so many more. So my question is, why do you think it's valuable to study production and music in general at a university level? Like, what value do you all see in studying this in college as opposed to just Mm. going out on your own? Uh, I think that's a really good question. And as a producer for underground rap, I've actually been asked that question. Like, why don't you just stop going to school and just do this as a career? And I think... My answer, at least, is there are a lot of things that I get out of school that I wouldn't get out of just diving in and jumping right into this industry, which, I mean, a lot of people do and are totally successful at. But they're they're like music theory things and bigger picture, like business things that I get through going to school. And 
that's that's kind of how I think about it. It's not necessary, but it is what you get out of it or put into it. I can definitely relate to that on uh, the holistic sort of note that you put out there just now in regards to especially connections that you can make within university, not only through the teachers, of course, but definitely through students with collaborating and finding more people in such a highly concentrated area who generally have somewhat similar aspirations to to what you do and even some who you may not have the same aspirations as them at the moment but you may come to form something that you never would have expected to anyways so yeah i i definitely think school is certainly not a bad thing in that regard it's it doesn't hurt in that area of things i don't think at all Mm -hmm. yeah definitely And another thing that I want to highlight just for our listeners is that recording and production students, you guys are incredibly vital at Lamont. Since the program offers a ton of opportunities for you guys to work on so many projects, for example, running sound for live concerts to recording Lamont small groups in the studio. And this working aspect of recording and production makes it, I think, really distinct from all other majors at Lamont. And you guys largely keep the school afloat in many ways. So my question is, what do you view as the best or favorite parts of the program that prepare you for the real world? Like, why do you think recording and production has this edge up on other majors? Mm. I would say the most valuable thing to me in the school, like, isn't the facilities, it's the faculty. In the music industry, a lot of people get mentors or people to help them learn and like navigate this like industry but we just have such amazing like faculty that's really my favorite thing about going to school is like picking the brain of the really really talented like teachers that we have and then as far as a leg up on the other majors I I don't know we do have that that kind of like grind to do behind the scenes a lot I personally feel with the production major Uh, The biggest reason why I chose to be a music production and recording major is because I felt like it enabled me even more than if I was a performance major to do what I personally strive to do in as far as being able to create and release uh, my own music at whatever pace that I choose and not having to rely on anybody else if I it gives I felt like it gave me or still gives me more options in the long run personally and in the network of music today as well because in in the professional world I am very interested in the tech side of music also with being a production major if you're looking at all of the gear before coming to school and you know it feels like very intimidating It's very, not calming, but like, it's like a a good feeling to know that even though you don't know what something is or like how to even go about asking a question about something that you don't even know about, at least you know that those, that facility is there and you have the faculty, like Holt said, that you can pick their brain all, all that you want and they're going to teach you about that stuff. It's, I think, very assuring. And to kind of expand on that, I mean, music is so digital now, 
And I think it's very hard to kind of have a grasp on music and trying to make a career in music without having some of that baseline knowledge of technology and recording and production in general. And so at Lamont specifically, we have, um, I mean, aside from music tech, which is a required course for non-recording majors at Lamont, performance and composition majors here are not often super tech savvy. Um, So do you think more technology self-entrepreneurship or music business should be taught not only at Lamont, but at music schools and conservatories in general. I definitely think that entrepreneurship should be emphasized in as many cases of school as possible. I would agree. I'm actually an entrepreneurship minor, so I decided to (laughs) to go that route. But yeah, I think there should be a lot more uh, music business courses and music technology courses, Um, even just so like everyone needs to know how to work a computer with with uh, proficiency. So mm-hmm. and that's you know, that's why we're trying to do this thing. I think that any music student should be able to take at least one quarter of recording production, maybe more. Any music student should learn how to record their own music, either live or in a home studio. Video production as well is something that I think should be offered to everybody. And you can do that by setting up a bigger program where the entry-level courses are for pretty much anybody who wants to take them. And then things kind of narrow out and specialize after that. But uh, yeah, any music student these days needs to at least be able to record themselves produce their own video, get it up somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that was really wonderfully said by all of you. Uh, and I agree with a lot of the points that you made. So then I guess just kind of closing out this part of the episode of just talking about learning, recording and production through a very serious music school. Do you think that the ability to play an instrument or knowing music theory is necessary to becoming a successful producer? My opinion on that, I've seen so many talented people work who could not play any instrument other than this one, the keyboard (laughs) to a computer. So I would, I I think that it almost would be better if we got rid of that requirement to be in an ensemble and be a musician. But then in the same vein, I think that it helps your ears and arranging and production and overall overall ear as a, a recording student to be a musician and be in that world too not just the behind the scenes world i i don't know i've just seen really talented people work who couldn't play like any musical instrument and they have an ear for it and they can do it you know we we're kind of stuck right now in music education in that the entire method of pedagogy has been built up out of the traditional conservatory system. I would like to see the development of new ways of teaching music theory where you don't need a background in classical music or jazz, where it's very directed and only presents the information that you really need to learn to make contemporary music. And I'm I'm using that term contemporary music, which means popular music, but contemporary music is much better. It's the, it's the majority of music that's being made today. And musicology, music history, music theory needs to adapt itself to that. And, and the people like me who teach this stuff can't teach the way we were taught anymore. Too much has changed in the past couple of decades. 
Um, uh, we've got we've got to change the approach and and the background in classical music or jazz is fantastic the ability to play an instrument uh, really really well is always great but there are so many just marvelous musicians out there who don't have that ability you know David Bowie is one he could play some guitar and he sang in a sang in a very uh, individual way that some people would say was incorrect but he's one of the greatest musical artists of all time and and we need to change the way we teach to accommodate that reality and it, it's it's starting to happen it's starting to happen here but it needs to it needs to keep happening yeah definitely and i think just as you were saying talking about starting this new major and kind of getting a blend of so many different artistic genres i think maybe we're headed for kind of like a new world order in music school <laughs> And just having this whole basis of artists, collectives, and teaching different types of skills rather than restricting people to one major or passion. Because a lot of people, um, as you guys have all displayed, have many different passions and like to pursue a lot of different things. And that's what um, a liberal arts university is supposed to be like. You know? It's supposed very to be true. opportunity yes. for all. Yes, definitely. Um, so then I kind of want to change gears and ask you all some individual questions about your work. A lot of the reason that we asked you guys specifically to be on this episode was because of your outside endeavors, uh, which are all very impressive and were mentioned in your bios at the beginning of the episode. So Holtz, we'll start with you. You've worked with a ton of really incredible artists and you mentioned that Zaba, who worked with Kendrick Lamar in Schoolboy Q, kind of refers to you as his prodigy. And that's incredibly impressive. You also plan to move to L.A. to pursue production after school. So tell us about your production journey and how you were able to excel in this career and what resources you used. Oh, gosh. Well, I feel like I have to go go way back. But I, uh, I started playing guitar when I was like 11 and I was really into like Metallica. And, and then I started listening to like indie music. But I, I always really loved like rap music and... I started producing rap music when I was like 17, 18, and then by the time I got to college to DU, I was in a, a an online like producer collective for this artist named Chapo, and we produced some songs for like Trippy Red and some other artists. And then Lil Peep's producer Laderic, or one of Lil Peep's producers Laderic, lived in Denver. Uh, and Lil Peep used to live in Denver too. And we talked online and then we we made a beat remotely and he was like, wow, this is really good. You really can play guitar and you have a good ear for making melodies for this kind of music. So he's like, come over, let's make music. And then it turned into, he would hit me up while I was in class and be like, hey, when you're done with class, come over, let's make some beats. And we'd make like four beats every time I went over there. And then he moved back to LA and he was in a studio that had like eight rooms and all these really talented artists also in this kind of genre were always at the studio. So I went out in like 2018 and that's where I met Zava. He, he was the engineer of the big room in that studio. So I would be in the little room with Lederick and we'd be making a beat and then some artists would come come in and like the beat, and then I would also engineer the session, 
And it got to a point where he was like, we don't need to go to Zaba's room when we have a really good artist. Like, you're good enough to engineer for these really good artists. And then I got more plugged in with Zaba, and he basically became my mentor, and he showed me a lot of things, taught me a lot of things. Not gatekeeping in a way, but he kept some things secret from me for a while. He, he definitely hid some knowledge. But once he knew kind of the person that I was and we worked for a while, he basically taught me everything he knew or knows. And then this summer I did an internship with him in L.A. and stayed with this at his house. And um, he... He's a great engineer. He works really fast. Uh, he's he kind of has, he he can he's pretty versatile, but he kind of has his sound that works best with him. But like like you said, Grace, he he was a TDE engineer and worked with Kendrick Lamar and Schoolboy Q and then Snoop Dogg and Freddie Gibbs and all these. He and his boss uh, told me that if I wasn't still going to school, they would hire me today, but finish up school and. As soon as I graduate, I have a job in L.A., so that's why I'm trying to move out there. So it's kind of just like you basically just worked with a lot of people. Yeah, I'd say the big takeaway is collaboration. Like you can't you can go far in a vacuum, but really in the kind of underground rap, new age bedroom, whatever, it is more individual because people are recording on their own and not going into studios and doing things more on their own. But it, in a way, it's way more collaborative, too. People are collaborating on the beat to the songwriting to the cover art to the video. Like, every part of it is really collaborative. And I don't know, I just met the right people, and they were impressed by my music theory knowledge and the way that I played guitar and conducted myself and I don't know I'm just plugged in with really really awesome people now locally and not locally awesome thank you so much we're gonna move on to CJ who is also a multifaceted musician if you could just tell us about your solo project reset and how you think your production style is distinct or unique or what you're trying to achieve with your solo project well similar to Holt I feel like I have to backtrack a little bit in order to really get an idea or give an idea of what reset really came from so when i was 10 years old uh, i started playing drums and i was definitely into rock and roll i think my very first inspiration was rush and neil peart and just yeah one of one of the great great legends um definitely rest in peace for sure but i as soon as i picked up the sticks i knew that was my passion and like music was my passion and I just you know I was addicted to it never wanted to stop and so I just kept going with that and my parents really supported me with it and I was involved throughout school bands and I got a lot of great mentors during that time uh, throughout middle school and high school inspiring me to go in like as many directions to be as well-rounded and versatile as a musician as I, I could get or could could be. And one of the things that I hadn't really ever tapped, but I always was, I guess I kind of had like a little bit of a secret interest for that I didn't acknowledge was hip hop. And that was in my, my sophomore year of high school that I really started to, to pay attention to it because I think 
one of my friends at a, a birthday party at the bowling alley. Har- you know the song Harlem Shake, you know, from the meme way back in the day. There's a drop part that happens in that song. And Harlem Shake isn't necessarily hip hop, but it does have that kind of trap oriented style with the hi-hats going on in one of the drops. And I remember my friend turned to me and he was like, dude, what is, what's going on there? Like, how do you, I wonder like what drummer that is. I'm like, oh yeah, I I do wonder what drummer that is. That's kind of crazy. Lo and behold, it wasn't a drummer. It was a machine. And one of my biggest inspirations drumming wise is a drummer named Jojo Mare who emulates drum and bass, dubstep, a lot of kind of like that early 2000s electronic music. So I was like, well, if I can, you know, I, I, with my passion towards drums, I wanted to always make sure that I was still palatable as a musician and be able to keep going in the real world. Like I really knew that I wanted to do this as, as a profession. So I had to adapt. And so with not growing up on hip hop, but being exposed to it and then really exposing myself furthermore, I would just gain like a really big interest towards it. And the beats just really drew me in and being able to emulate that stuff and feeling like I could create a sound within that style that I felt was innovative just at drums at the time. I thought, you know, this is, you know, this is it. I'm going to be able to get this rolling. I'll figure out like what rapper to hit up so I can get into a, 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 a band of some sort and a company, a rapper. And I didn't have, very much success with that and um i did actually drum with my for my sister um wit blue or that's her her artist name uh wit blue and i was able to do some of that trap element stuff in her music uh which was really fun but it wasn't super consistent and that's the only artist that i ever like did that with so even by then i was thinking you know still in the adaptive mode uh, at the same time of listening to this hip hop music, thinking like, you know, all of these personalities are so like outspoken and like, you know, really chest out. And I, I was like really attracted to that at the same time. I, I, I think it was kind of refreshing to get that sort of sense because that's not what I grew up around. So I, I think I just I got attracted to it because it was like a something that I wasn't used to. It was something that was kind of like exotic, I guess. And just all of that you know, in the pot, stir it up with not really coming around to doing anything with rappers as a drummer. I was like, well, what's wrong with me being a rapper? What's wrong with me being a vocalist and then creating my own music? And then furthermore, being a palette for other musicians to express exactly what I was feeling about instrumental music at the time when I was feeling that way of like, how am I even going to get hired in these, you know, big situations? And that's how like reset really came about. Yeah. I'm, I'm very passionate about, I guess, like one of my things I think that's in my bio is I think about new ways of performing modern music while still paying homage towards traditional styles and traditional ways of performing music. So that's ultimately what I'm, I'm really about. And at the same time of like, you know, continually developing, being an artist is so much more than just being an instrumentalist. It's a, 
it's about being a human being to me it's about your person like what can you bring to the world and yeah i'm i'm very passionate about that i liked a lot what you said about adapting music moves very fast and we're constantly getting exposed to new genres and new music and new inspirations for what we can do with our own music so i think that's very key is just the ability to adapt and it's it's about adapting to what you believe in as well you don't you don't have to compromise yourself in order to fit every situation ever if if you 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 really you can find yourself in i think every place if you look for it yeah definitely that's really wonderfully said And then we're going to just quick jump to Michael Scholes here. You've been at the forefront of so much technological advancement in music, especially in higher education, from starting the Lamont School program, as we talked about, and also founding the audio engineering at Oberlin. Recently, you've been working with the Boulder Ballet from 2017 to 2020, in which Wi-Fi inertial sensors worn by the dancers control real-time generation of melody and rhythm using artificial intelligence algorithms. So first of all, what does that mean in simple terms for me and other non-tech savvy listeners? Well, here's, here's, here's the deal. The, the sensors, okay, so the, the, the sensors are these little things, um, oh, about the size of half a credit card. They sense uh, roll, pitch, and yaw, and acceleration in three dimensions. And there's a little transmitter on them that transmits a radio signal. And these are available off the shelf, SparkFun Electronics. Gonzalo Martins is a professor of electrical engineering at the, at the engineering school at, he, at DU. He designed a system whereby this uh, sensor could be combined with a transmitter and got the whole thing working for me. So the dancers are wearing these things on their wrist, and um, the more they move, the more the numbers change. That gets picked up by uh, my laptop. And so I've got this, this data coming in that represents the kind of movements that they're making. If they're moving in a very slow and languid way, that's one thing. If they're jerking around and, and going crazy, that's another thing. The artificial intelligence part of it, what I did was I, I developed some patches using a, a program called Max MSP, which is kind of like a, a programming environment, a visual programming language. You're not typing so much as you are dragging boxes and lines around. I, I came up with a patch in Max MSP where I play some music in on a keyboard and then the software analyzes that and generates new notes based on the probabilities of the notes that I played. So if if you play a C major scale and that's it, if you play any note on that scale, the software is going to generate the next note on that scale. So if you get a little bit more complex and you just kind of sit and jam for a minute or two and, and play some little musical motifs in, then what the software can do is kind of mimic what you play. So what I did was I trained the software with, uh, I sat there and played starting from a very kind of static place and just kind of gradually got a little bit more interesting and a little bit more dissonant and then stopped. So I've got this chunk of music that starts calm and ends up kind of crazy. 
And what, what happens then is that as the sensor data comes in, when the dancers are being kind of calm, the music is being improvised by the computer based on the sections that I played that were kind of calm. And the more active the dancers get, the music is generated um, more and more towards the more frenetic end of, of what I played. And it's, it's really fun that the, the musical lines that come out are things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. And then what I can do is once I'm generating all this musical material is then I can kind of do some further processing to constrain things a little bit more and make it make a little bit more sense. So I, ju I just find this stuff fascinating and I can sit and, and listen to this for hours and I'm, I'm often surprised at, at the ideas that the computer comes up with. The four years that I worked with Boulder Ballet, um, I created electronic music each time, usually about a half an hour's worth and uh, Lance Harden and, and Amy Ernest up there uh, choreographed and then this fantastic company of about 15 dancers just dance their hearts out and, and do an amazing job of, of all this incredibly athletic stuff. I mean, musicians, we work hard, we develop our chops, we develop muscles, we develop, you know, coordination. Dancers do that on such a bigger level. I mean, their entire body is is their instrument. It's, it's, it's so amazing to watch what they do. But it was all fixed music. I mean, the music, I would I would program variation into it, and, and Holt knows what I'm talking about. You can program Ableton Live so that you, you start something and it comes out a little bit different every time. Um, and that's the way the music was done. But for the first time this, this past February, one of the <coughs> movements was generated completely live at the show from my laptop using this incoming data. So I'm up there in the back of the audience, like sweating bullets, watching my computer. Like, oh, my God, I hope it doesn't crash. And I was pushing <laughs> it, too. Let me tell you, I was pushing the software as hard as it could go. And a major part of the project was just trying to get it to the point where it wouldn't totally lock up. That's kind of a little path that I've been on for the last couple of years. And I finally got to the point where I was able to, to pull something like that off live. It was really well received. People really loved it. The dancers loved it. They liked the challenge of the music being a little bit different every time. And they always like the fact that a ballet dancer, most of what they do is classical music. You know, they do Nutcracker every year. And they love that, but anytime they get something that's closer to the music that they actually walk around listening to on their on their earbuds, you know, that just thrills them. Right now what I'm working on is using the same hardware. I'm developing a glove controller, which is something that, that other people have done. Uh, but it yeah, yeah. still can be like a homebrew thing. So I'm going to have these two gloves. And the gloves sense uh, the roll, pitch, and yaw of my hands and the acceleration. But they also sense the bend of five fingers. So you've got all this information now that you can enter by moving your hands around in different ways. And different musicians could use this in completely different ways. Kind of the current project is to get the gloves happening. They're done. They just need to be kind of sewed and put together. And then starting to practice with this new instrument, spend time with it every day, and get to the point where I can generate music using this in combination with the artificial intelligence thing so that I it, it becomes fluent and natural just like playing a saxophone right and um speaking of that glove technology that's has become or is becoming maybe super applicable to popular music as well with Imogen Heap yep. and Ariana Grande who have both used that glove technology in their music and in their live shows which is really cool and those are the Mimu gloves which were kind of the first big splash and they're terrific and we got to host uh, Kelly Snook 
who is the scientist behind the development of, of the Mimu glove. She came and, and gave a demonstration and a talk. And we continue to be engaged with her. And the nice thing about our gloves is that they are so much cheaper uh, to <laughs> produce than the Mimu gloves. Kelly and the Mimu team always intended to release a uh, open source component to that system. That's kind of what, what Gonzalo and I are, are trying to do is develop our own version of that that is much less expensive, a couple hundred dollars for a pair of gloves. Yeah, and that's just so fascinating to me. Um, this it's not even so advanced anymore. Like it could become usable for, you know, people that just take a few hours to learn how to use this technology. Yeah. And our stuff is up on, on a website, by the way. There's there's a website that it needs to come back up and we'll make some kind of announcement soon. But, but the whole design, once it's done, will be open source. It'll be up. Everything that you need, instructions. Basically, you spend like, you know, $200, $300, buy all the parts, put it together. The software will be up there. Anybody will be able to, to get into this and then we'll see where they take it. Do you think that this type of 3D and AI music could become a thing in popular recording techniques? Oh yeah, it's already becoming a thing. I think one thing that has been holding this back is that much of the research has been uh, by, by super talented computer scientists, has been trying to develop software that can like generate um, music that sounds like Mozart or jazz or something like that. And what I'm finding in my experimentation is that that kind of music relies on so much information. You know, if you're playing jazz, you have to be familiar with such this huge lexicon of music and all this context, and you have to understand these various songs, and you quote things, and, you know, the music modulates and changes keys. There's so much more to it than the actual learning and the technique, stuff that we may never understand that goes on inside the brain of a great jazz musician. Right now, where the software is, the software is much better at producing music that doesn't modulate. Because once you modulate, you're stepping away from something with a certain relation and you've got to work your way back. So music that doesn't modulate, like, like electronic dance music and, and a lot of popular music, is much more applicable and the software tends to do a much better job of generating that kind of music. So that's that's the direction that I'm taking it. I, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what the music is good at doing, and I'm not going to try to push it to, to, to generate a Mozart piece. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And we'll definitely link some of your work with that in the description of the podcast so people can check out some more stuff. And then finally, in this last uh, few questions here, I just want to talk about some general recording and production questions with you all. So first of all, all of you have very different styles of production. Um, and so I'm just curious, what production techniques or styles do you use when recording different genres? What is different about, you know, recording a rap song than recording a jazz combo? The context and the, the type of person, there's, there's some subtle things, but with rap, it's so important. I mean, with any record recording, it's important to have the artist feel comfortable and it be a space and a vibe. But I feel like with with rap music, it's so much about just getting the person in the right headspace and just nailing the tracking. And I mean, that could that probably is also equally true for every other genre. But I don't know. I just find it's it's a very like people 
like a, a very personable skill that you have to have other than these technical skills. There's a lot of like interacting with people and like dialogue and figuring things out. Whereas with jazz, I maybe it's I'm less comfortable in the genre, but I feel like I almost have to just be quiet and just let them do their whole thing and then maybe talk to them mm -hmm. a little about certain things, but there's just less things in the air to talk about. Different genres of music as far as, as audio production goes. In classical music, the hand of the engineer should be invisible. The whole point is to make the, the listener forget that they're hearing a recording and create the most realistic experience possible. Jazz is similar to that. You can go a little bit further in adding some color here and there, but basically your job as engineer or producer is to reproduce the performance in a way that is most complementary to what actually happened in the room. And then at the other end of the spectrum in various popular music genres, the engineer and the producer get to, to play a much bigger part in actually creating the sound and altering things and kind of creating a, a musical sonic, like psychological space. So you listen to, uh, to a great Nine Inch Nails recording and there's something about the sounds, there's something about the engineering that just conveys like a disturbing kind of feeling and you can't kind of quit your, put your finger on what it is, but it, the engineering adds to the feeling of the music. And what, what I've always tried to do, my background is, is I started in classical music and then got into jazz and then got into rock and roll. I, it took me a long time to get into rock and roll because I worked at places that didn't have the right studio. It was really expensive back in the day. It's so much cheaper now. But I, I always try to teach the students that being an engineer and by extension a producer is a continuum. You need to be comfortable in that place where somebody wants you to record something and not alter anything and then you need to be able to go all the way to where they want you to be a major part of the whole production, the whole vibe of the thing and you need to be able to go back and forth anywhere along that continuum and if you listen to uh, like Kendrick Lamar um, to Pimp a Butterfly that record has so many examples of all that there's, there's acoustic-sounding yeah. jazz, there's really heavily processed hip-hop, and, and, and everything in between. And I, I should be able to tell you who mixed it, and I, I forget, and I'm ashamed. It's mixed by Ali. Okay, there there you go. Um, I mean, that the, the, the tracking engineers and the mixing engineer and, and all the producers involved did such a great job of just covering so much musical ground in, in that production, because... They've all got just the right engineering skills to fit into their particular slot in the whole project. Yeah, definitely. So I think, yeah, one of the main distinctions then is just like level of artistic engagement. And just like with the classical, you're going to be much more in the back and just letting the piece play as it is. And then if you're helping someone create an original album, you're going to want, they're going to want more of your input and more of your artistic guidance. And that, that classical thing is not easy, by the way. The fact that you have to take a very minimalist approach in many ways is a lot harder. I mean, you're definitely yeah. putting a thing on it, um, but that has to be, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy either. How would you all describe your individual sounds then? Are there some recording techniques or production skills that you apply to your music to make your specific sounds unique? I would say for my style, I'm really into ambient music and kind of feel and melody and harmony over everything. Like it, simplicity, it, could, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be complex. I love 
like reverb and really washed out things. I love creating like soundscapes. Maybe my special production technique right now is in how I use like panning. Uh, I've been experimenting a lot with like just the center and the sides and like how arrangements feel when they're very stereo or very mono or moving around and how different things can can mess with the stereo image of something yeah definitely i think oh obviously um mike and holt are much more seasoned in the area of mixing and mastering than i am i've personally really enjoyed being a fly on the wall to hear a lot of the stuff that they've been saying as far as stylistically how i might describe the approach that i take to mixing and mastering my own stuff definitely if there's drums involved i always make sure that the drums are smacking as hard as they can i think that is just the the drums and the bass i should say that i i always try my best to make sure that those are slapping first and if that's happening then a lot of the time the the rest of the the song kind of falls into place furthermore as far as like a a mixing thing that i've picked up on a bit that i feel like is somewhat unique to me is when i like to mix my my vocals and other people's vocals especially in hip-hop i like to surround my vocals with effects that bring a lot of variation on a very subtle level, um, whether that be bringing a reverse reverb into the certain vowel consistently of a phrase, or having a delay that's really in the background of something that's very minimalist in vocal lines where there's enough space to actually tell where that delay is but make it sound like it's way out there, and then throw in a reverb on top of that, or even adding another delay after that initial delay that has a reverb on it to give it even more variation. Maybe more or less it's like a phase, maybe not a phase of, of mine that I'm definitely interested in right now with the vocal production side of things. Do you have anything to add to that, Mike? Give us your secrets. <laughs> I see my secrets. Um, buy low, sell high. That's one. <laughs> You know, the more advanced that the software gets and the more powerful that it gets, you can be sitting in your in your home studio at three in the morning working on a track and, oh, you know, wow, you know what, a French horn section right here would just be the thing. And you've got it, you know. Or, oh, you know what, this groove sounds a little bit like a like a Ringo groove. Hey, hold on, I can I can make my drums sound like a, a, a mid sixties Beatles recording. Again, one of the things that I that I try to teach is is for the students to develop the the hearing skills uh, necessary to be able to listen to some great recording, maybe some great old recording, and kind of figure out how they can get that sound with the tools that they've got today. And that can go so much, so far to enhance, propel the emotion of a song. In the stuff that I'm working on right now, and I'm, I'm working on some more, you know, rock-oriented things at the moment, I'm just really enjoying being able to put that kind of huge variety in a track and start a song. And this is kind of what, what, 
what Bowie did through through his career. If you if you look at all the different Bowie albums, each album kind of stays in the same place, but then the next album is completely different musically, conceptually, sonically. And then in, in his later career, the last couple of records, the record has got all those different things on one record. Like you go listen to The Next Day, the double album. Material from five, ten different albums all stuck on there. And that's what really excites me these days is to be able to, to produce a bunch of songs and have each one be in just come from a completely different universe. I'm just enjoying kind of going back and sifting through all the stuff I've learned over the years and learning so much from Holt and CJ and so many of my other students that are constantly turning me on to new stuff that I wouldn't know and new ways of doing stuff that I wouldn't come up with if I wasn't hanging out with these young students of mine all the time. And that's what I'm really digging is is like learning from them and exploring and being able to, oh, yeah, I know how you could make that sound. Hold on and I'll try that, you know, and then I can help them kind of figure out how to how to how to get that kind of stuff. So being a teacher is, is just so awesome if you're open to to what your students can can teach you back. A lot of musicians and non-producers listen to this podcast. And I know from my experience, the first time I was even remotely in a studio recording situation, uh, I was so confused on what to do, and I wasn't aware of any prepping that needed to be done before hitting the studio and working with any kind of producer. So what tips would you give to musicians on how to prepare for the studio, and what do we need to know before we work with producers? I would say the more prepared that you feel, the more comfortable that you'll be. I find when a lot of people book my home studio is that if they just book time and they're like, I'm going to freestyle, here's some beat I found, that's when they get nervous is when they haven't really fully prepared. Mm -hmm. But the people who they have their notes with them that they wrote the song out on. They know exactly what song they're getting on, what it is, like all the pieces, kind of the arrangement. It just goes so much smoother. So I just always tell people, like, the more that you're prepared, the more confident you're going to be, the better you'll perform. I would say be open to advice or, like, be open to the engineer helping the project. A lot of artists... They have this mentality of, I know exactly what my song should sound like. A lot of the times that they're totally right and what they're saying to do is the right thing to do. But sometimes your engineer could have a better idea than even you thought of. And if you just have that mentality of like, here's what I want to do, but I'm still open to it being better than I can even think of it right now, then you're going to have the most success. I would go from any advice from a, a personal like instrumentalist or even yeah just a performer standpoint one of the most valuable pieces of advice that I try to remind myself with is not to overthink my performance when I'm going into the studio consciously knowing that it's okay to mess up being in a studio can be very intimidating I think especially when first going into one, you see all this insane looking gear and especially when you get put in your own booth, you're away from all your band members for sound isolation. It can definitely be very intimidating, but I think really at the end of the day, you just have to be okay with what you know at that moment that you're recording 
and remember to breathe metaphorically, you know, mentally and, and literally. I think if you go into the studio with that mindset, and of course, with, with practice, it also develops, your confidence will develop. But if you consistently go into the studio with that mindset, I think you will m- much more consistently yield better results. Advice for musicians going into studio who maybe haven't done it that much. You know, first of all, there's a reason why you're there. Either somebody wants you there because what you do is great, or you've saved up the money and you're hiring the studio because you know what you're doing is great. It's different from being in front of a live audience, but you need to remember that, first of all, these days just about anything can be fixed. You don't have to get it perfect the first time. If you're working with with great people, the vibe is going to be really supportive, and everybody there wants... Uh, the finished product to come out as good as it possibly can be and yeah you need to prepare you need to be at the top of your game but then once you walk through those doors you need to forget all that and do what you do definitely Mm -hmm. and I think those are wonderful words to close out this episode today so thank you all so much for being guests today it was wonderful talking to all of you and getting your insight on this uh we'll be sure to link some of your solo projects in the description of this podcast so people can check out some of your further work but as of now we're gonna say goodbye and we'll see you next episode thank you thank you for having us thanks thank you so much for joining us in our roundtable discussion about recording and production If you have any questions, suggestions, or would like to be featured on a future podcast, please contact us at lamontroseroom at gmail.com. Thanks.